podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Zero Ducks Given. And I am joined as ever by Mr. Daniel Norcross and Mr. Stephen Finn. And the tables have turned because after Finney dragged me and Norcross out of bed early, the last few times you recorded this podcast, well, now it's Finney's turn as Dan and I are recording at quarter past nine on a Monday evening in London. Dan Norcross has got a glass of white wine he's holding up to the sky. And poor Finney has been dragged out of bed at seven in the morning. Great to see you, Finney. It must be lovely to wake up and immediately look at myself and Dan Norcross. A lot of people would pay good money for that. Uh, yeah, and they'd be absolute fools for paying money to spend any time with you whatsoever, let alone at half past seven in the morning. Um, yeah, I'd love to say it's a pleasure, but it absolutely is not. Um, I'm half asleep. I feel like I've just eaten the Sahara Desert. My mouth's dry. I've not had a sip of water. And I have to sit and listen to you two. <laughs> and and as always, it's lovely to see you too, Stephen Finn. And uh, and and and, for, and uh, for the record, Daniel Norcross is now arrogantly waving and smiling at Finney down the camera. Uh, Norcross, I mean, you're tired as well. Don't forget, and Finney is now sticking a middle finger up at Dan Norcross. Uh, Dan, you're you're tired as well. I mean, you you were working all over the night doing this Ashes coverage. Oh, I'm hysterical, is what I am, Toby. It was it was the maddest thing. So basically, what what happened was that there was a COVID outbreak in the in the broadcast boxes. So a very small, very small one, but the way that Cricket Australia, uh, their regulations work, meant that ABC and BBC were off air. So suddenly there was no test match special. And um, I got a call up yesterday uh, to see if I could come in and do to the last day because the, the only other option was that we were taking the feed from Perth's ABC. But it's obviously it's a bit different because they're calling it off tube and they're all Australian and TMS listeners like to hear somebody English. So Tuppers and I did the, the red eye shift this morning. And when you're not prepared for it, a, a day night is the worst time you can possibly do stuff. You'll, you'll know from mornings that because you don't have time to go to sleep beforehand because you have to be picked up at like half one. Mm. So you're already frantically thinking, Christ, I'm going to forget the alarm. So you then go through the night. And uh, I mean, you know, arguably my commentary is loose at the best of times, but I can tell you that. At around about eight o'clock this morning, Tuppers and I, I don't think we can remember a single word we said to each other. It was drivel. Um, <laughs> I, 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 luckily, I checked the BBC and they put the Fox commentary on the highlights. So, oh, did they? <laughs> clearly, it was total gibberish. <laughs> it was, um, it was gibberish. It was it went on a bit longer than we expected it to because of England's stoic performance on the last day. And I've come back. And there's a leak in my hall because I don't know why, but there's water just sort of cascading through my ceiling. So it's, it's been one of those days uh, which I, I can't solve any of my problems. And I'm a total wreck of a man, much like what the Ashes does to all English people, whether they be players or supporters. We uh, come out the end of it, uh, diminished, hollow husks of our previous former glorified, glorified selves. So basically, there's a leak in the ceiling and rather than do the manly, noble thing and, you know, try and fix it or resolve it, you've immediately poured a glass of wine and jumped on this podcast with us, yeah. basically. Well, yeah. I, live in a, I live in a mansion block. So I got in touch with a person whose flat it is. He's moved into it, but he doesn't live in it. 
and we can't work out why there's water coming down through our ceiling. So they're calling a plumber tomorrow. Meanwhile, I just get wet. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm so exhausted and I'm so disappointed by England's performance in the Ashes that I really don't care. Fair enough. <laughs> just, Fair enough. There, there are more tears of pain pouring out of my face than there are even rivulets of water cascading through my ceiling. <laughs> well, let's... Let's get into it then. Let's talk about the Ashes. Uh, so if you don't know, and if you've been living under a rock, England are now 2-0 down in the Ashes after two matches, after losing by 275 runs, despite a rather brave performance on the final day, in particular from Joss Butler, with a bit of support as well from Chris Wokes. The scary thing is, England have never come back from 2-0 down to win an Ashes series in the 139 years history that this series has been taking place. And Pat Cummins and Josh Hazelwood are back for the Aussies in the next test as well. Philly, it's a weird one because I think we all at one point or another predicted in the build-up to this Ashes series over the last few months that we thought England would probably lose. And I think all of us may have even uttered the, the phrase 5-0 at some point. And yet, it doesn't make it any easier to watch it happen, even though this is what I was expecting. How much are Australia just better than England? How much have England been disappointing? Look, Australia were relentless in their own conditions. Nathan Lyon obviously plays a huge part for Australia by being able to hold and attack at the same time, which is what Graham Swan did for England. Um, it means that they can balance their attack far better than, than England have been able to in the two test matches so far. But yeah, I think the, the fact that Australia won the toss in this Adelaide test match played a huge part in allowing them to control the game. Joe Rooty sounded a bit angry and fed up and I think quite, yeah, just quite pissed off, to be honest, in his press conference yesterday that he did with us at the BBC um, and just wanted to show his team to show more fight and determination that they did on the last day, right from the first ball of the game. Yeah, I, I completely agree. It was sort of the closest thing I've ever seen to an angry Joe Root. He was still adorable because he's Joe Root, but it was the closest to an angry Joe Root I've ever seen. Um, he said the bowlers bowled the wrong lengths, which which we could all tell looking at home. They probably bowled too short on the first day, um, and they did well. They, they you know they controlled the Australians, didn't really let them get away from them, but they didn't look very threatening at all. And it was quite embarrassing, I thought, in the second innings when David Milan and Joe Root looked more threatening than the Seamers had in the, in the entire build up to the three days before that. Um, what do you make of it, Dan? It, disappointing England, or is this what we expected? Australians very good in Australia. We're not great at the minute. It's a combination of those things to me. I think England have not got their plans right. Uh, and if they are indeed plans, to go into the to the Adelaide Test match and do exactly the same thing, really, as they did four years ago. Four years ago, England won the toss. I believe they elected to bowl because there were grey skies and it was cold and weird and it felt like swinging conditions. And Anderson and Broad bowled by consensus and also by that of... of Alistair Cook actually was captain that day too short and they went back to exactly the same venue and they planned the series around Anderson and Broad the day-night test which it has its own perils because Adelaide's the flattest track in Australia beautiful for batting and if the beautiful glorious sunshine is out then it's going to be you know it doesn't really matter that you're that you've got two of the best team bowlers swing bowlers if they're not going to get to use that pink new ball until 80 overs in a day when they're a bit knackered. So the, the planning, the, the, the sort of thought processes just don't seem to have been right. 
And then, of course, everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. Uh, fight has been shown. But you've got to say, to me, this all comes down to selection. Uh, what was the Brisbane team doing being selected for Brisbane and the Adelaide team for Adelaide? When they should have been really the other way round, frankly, which is concerning. And I think there's a little bit of magical thinking going on in the England camp that day-night tests are our way in. They only are if you, you've got to read the conditions right. And as I said before, Adelaide is a pile on the runs thing and people will blame the batters. Joe Root was very interesting, I thought, in that press conference. That he went after the bowlers and really, when he's doing that, he's going after Broad and Anderson and, and Wokes and Robinson, but Broad and Anderson, who, in a sense, he might feel ought to know better, having been in similar circumstances, almost identical four years before, and bowled the same lengths before. So if that's his gripe, then I don't know what why it hasn't changed in four years. Uh, I, I completely agree. And I do think there is one bit of sympathy for England here is the injuries to Archer and Stone have made their life a lot harder as well. I don't think it was their plan to turn up with four guys bowling, you know, 80 miles an hour in any of these test matches. But unfortunately, Mark Wood can't play five games. So losing Mark Wood was obviously a big factor. And Stokes, who's not played a lot of cricket recently, being told to be the enforcer, you know, it's not the same as Mark Wood running in and steaming in and bowling 90 miles an hour at your head. Uh, Finney, we're, we're Broad and Anderson. I mean, they're two of the greatest fast bowlers of all time. The two greatest English fast bowlers ever, probably. How does that happen? Is it, Would they have been trying to bowl full and just not quite executing their plans? Or did Anderson and Broad sort of have their own plans and, and, and not stick to whatever the idea was? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say it was the latter of the two because the, the, there's no way that that would happen. I think there's a big difference between being between winning the toss and bowling and losing the toss and bowling first because your mentality is very different. When you win the toss and bowl, you, you sort of have the licence to be able to go and try and take wickets because, because you, you've elected to bowl in those conditions because you believe they're favourable conditions. And your mentality and your subconscious mentality around it actually makes you more attacking. Whereas when you lose the toss and bowl, you know that the other team are batting because the conditions are good for batting. So therefore, subconsciously, you, you're probably a little bit more defensive in the lengths that you bowl because you don't want to give the batters the opportunity to go flying out of the blocks, especially when you know you've got that nighttime session where the ball is meant to do more. So, so on that first day in the first two sessions, what I saw was just the team who were trying to control the scoreboard as opposed to try and take wickets, which I'm, I'm actually completely fine with when you're trying to control the scoreboard, I think had they taken two or three wickets in that evening session, had Josh Butler caught Minus Labashain in that evening session, then their tactics may have been justified, but they didn't. Um, and that leads to people questioning it. But yeah, there, there's certainly as a bowler, I mean, I was never good enough to be able to decide that I was just going to bowl three foot fuller. I know Broad and Anderson are much better bowlers than me, but you sort of bowl you bowl generally to a plan and you get a feel for what's going on whilst you're bowling your spell. So, yeah, I, I'm reticent to be too overly critical about the bowlers bowling a little bit short on that first day because of the game situation. I, I, um, I, 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 I felt like, sorry there, Norcross, I felt like we, you and I meant to interject there when Finney said that Anderson and Broad are much better bowlers than him and say like, no, no, you, you're brilliant, Finney. But we just we we really let that statement linger in the air. I felt sorry about that, Finney. Um, well, it's it's a it's a strange one because I do think that is a huge point there. 
And Andy Flower, I know at times, the great England side under Andy Flower, was, he was obsessed with control, especially if they lost the t- toss at the beginning. That's how people like Bresnan did such a good job under Andy Flower. Well, um, that's why I didn't play. <laughs> it's true. You're a strike bowler. There was no room for a strike bowler on Andy Flower's side. But the fact is, England have lost, uh, have dropped 12 catches already yeah. in this series, seven in this match. And I do think if that Labuschagne catch gets held by Butler, it would have been a very different looking scorecard overnight. And, and we would have thought, you know what? New batsman tomorrow, we, we could actually get into this lot. So ultimately, if you are going to restrict the runs, which England did actually do well on the first day, that's fine. But it means when your chance does come along, you've got to take it. And, and the fielding is killing England in this series. Um, Norcross, yeah. in already a series that was going to be difficult, you can't afford to have to take an extra seven wickets a match. Well, there are so many more moving parts when you're in the field than when you're batting. You know, when you're batting, it's, it's 11 men are going to go out and bat and face balls. And you, you, there's a sort of controllable there. But in the field, bowlers are, are bowling good wicket-taking balls and getting edges and they're not being taken. If they're not being taken, then it's very, very demoralising because as a team, and especially as a bowler, you know, you've done everything right. You've got that wicket. And as you said, the number of England drops is poor. The, the fielding has been poor. Um, and the number of no balls England have bowled have been poor. It, it, it's been the performance of a rusty side that hasn't played any cricket in Australia. Um, you, you look at the percentage of leaves. I mean, I think this is very in, intriguing as well. Australia have left 33% of their balls in England, 25%. And the part of the reason for that is simply acclimatisation to Australian conditions. Because as a batter, if you're English, the length that people are bowling, you've got to actually play in England because they're still hitting the stumps. In Australia, they're leaving on height. You look at Labuschagne, he's leaving essentially balls that are straight but going over the top quite a lot of the time or really close to off something going over the top. And that's a function of these guys having played in Australia, been brought up in Australia, playing on those pitches and English batters not doing that. So, you know, that's more why you get England players playing at balls that you think that they don't need to and getting out. England always had to do everything absolutely right at the start of this series if they were going to be in with a chance of beating Australia in their own patch. And the problem is that they've done way too many things wrong, both in team selection before the start of the game, and those are the ones that are really annoying. And then as a not particularly naturally gifted fielding team, they haven't performed even to the best of their abilities in doing that. So they've given themselves a mountain to climb. But... Uh, and it's a very small but. There have been some incredible performances today. Josh Butler got the third slowest innings for anybody who's faced 150 balls. He absolutely set his stall out to be there till the end. And the way he got out was so brutal. Mm-hmm. I mean, he became the first English batter to be hit wicket in Australia since Dennis Compton in 1946. <laughs> Great stuff. I mean, you, yeah. you sort of wait 75 years. And, and it was just a regulation ball from Jai mm. Richardson. And there's, you can't have a go at Joss Butler for that. And people, people will look at his average and go, oh, he only averages this. Today, he threw away 40-odd runs. I mean, he, mm. he put the ball into space, but he wasn't going to run. He played the most selfless, most brilliant innings. Um, I'm not having a word said against him. He's got 167 balls in the T20, and he's got 26 in... 207 or something in a test match. He's a bloody diamond. And uh, it's a whole combination of factors that have led England to be where they are. We spend too much time fixating on a specific individual. 
I, I do have, but I want to fixate on Josh Butler a little bit longer because I do have to ask, because Finney, you'll, you'll know Josh well, but I felt really sorry for him the first couple of days play. That drop catch, obviously, really, you know, it hurt him, you could tell. And his body language on day two and three was was really poor. Then obviously he didn't score any runs in the first innings. Actually, he should have been out very early into the 207 ball vigil. He snicked one somehow between the wicketkeeper and first slip. But... I have to admit, when he strode out, I wasn't expecting him to put in that sort of performance at all. And it is a mark of the man that he was able to go out there after the four days he'd had prior to that and bat for 207 balls. But you must have been seeing his body language um, out there. He, 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 I guess you don't expect it from a wicketkeeper who's sort of the energetic hub, but he looked to me like a man who has been in and out of hotels and quarantines and played a lot of cricket in weird circumstances the last 18 months or so. Oh, I don't know. That's I didn't feel that watching him live. Yeah, when he dropped that catch on the first evening, he was obviously very, very disappointed because I think he and everyone realised that it was um, an important moment of the match and it was almost what England... Oh, sorry, I'm yawning because I'm fucking bored of you two talking. Um, I, um, <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, I, I didn't see... Uh, of like bad body language in those second and third days. I mean, it's and and also I know and well everyone knows him. He's one of the best situational players in the world. Him and Ben Stokes, their ability to determine what is required in the situation and then do it. Um, they're two of the most talented players in the world for being able to do that. So um, I had no doubt that he was going to try and set his stall out. I mean, he loves AB Billiards as well, who I think has the three slowest half centuries ever or something something stupid like that and and Joss loves Joss loves the Villiers so he'd have been trying to emulate him on that last day um but everyone drops catches I mean it, and he's not the only person who's guilty of that in the England team this series um I think a certain degree of leeway has to be given for guys who've not played competitive test match cricket for a little while because it is exhausting mentally and physically um, and that's not an excuse for the guys um, The guys losing this test series 2-0 so far. But I think it can be a nod towards how difficult it will be for those guys. Um, and especially when momentum gets against you in a series, it's very hard to swing it, especially when the tests are back-to-back and we've got five back-to-back mm-hmm. test matches. So they couldn't be more perfect situations for Australia right now. Can, can I just ask, actually, because on that... Um... I got annoyed looking at Twitter. I mean, Twitter, you know, we've discussed social media recently on this podcast, but, you know, it can be a cesspit at the best of times. But people have very short memories because I was reading Twitter after Butler dropped that catch. And obviously there's loads of people laying into Josh Butler, people calling for him to be dropped and saying he's a crap keeper. Prior to this series, he dropped 10 catches for England. He's done a very, very good job behind the stumps for a long time, especially to the seamers as well. And, and I was annoyed at the reaction to him. Sorry, Finney, you're pointing at me. I, I'm pointing at you because, so we've been working with Ian Chappell for the last yeah. couple of weeks here in Australia. And, and every time he comes on air, so Andy Zaltzman, the stats man for BBC, will say, Josh Butler's actually got the best catching success rate for a wicketkeeper in the world over the last couple of years. 92%, which is higher than the next highest is 88%, which is Peter Neville or something in the last five years and and Ian Chappell would just come on and go 
Nah, fucking bullshit, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He did. He I, I, I heard. I heard that he, he just he basically refused to accept facts because people have got this idea about Josh Butler that he's yeah. some kind of luxury pick that England yeah. have chosen because they're so dandified. It's like we're kind of like seventeenth-century cavaliers or you know eighteenth-century wankers in wigs wandering around going, "Oh, look, look at our prize thing. We've got this marvelous Josh Butler. He's like a Fabergé egg. We can toss him in." And um, they forget that he averages over 30 with a bat. His, his, his average is comparable with best, though. He takes blinding catches. I mean, the catches that he took were mm. absolutely staggering. He Ironically, he was, catching, he was catching all the really tricky yeah. ones and dropping all the, yeah. the simple ones. England have had two innings so far. And in the first innings at, at Brisbane, he was England's best batter. And in the second innings at Adelaide, he was arguably their best batter. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous. To be pointing the finger at him as if he's it, the problem. It annoyed me more, so much. It's more, the, it's more a combination of the muddled thinking around selection, the muddled thinking around what you do at a toss, and luck. There is a lot of luck in this. You know, Australia got the, the pink ball test. They won the toss in 37-degree heat. Biddy will tell you, the first couple of days were sweltering, and then, like Adelaide can do, the temperature plummeted. And so the Aussie bowlers were bowling in better conditions. They had the new ball under lights twice, heading the, the new ball under, under lights, well, once pointlessly, really, when they were going out to defend a, a deficit of 240-odd. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of crap goes on inside a cricket match. It's not an individual, it's not a person that is to blame here. There is a bit of luck involved, and England just haven't done the things that they needed to do right to stay competitive against the misfortune of, of you know, how the tosses have gone. I mean, the, the fact is as well, for every, I agree with everything you said, you know, selection, you can argue about certainly um, injuries haven't helped England, like I said, with Stone and Archer earlier on. But the fact is, if you are going in just purely statistics, the Australia side are much better than this England side. You know, you take Root out of our side, they've got Smith, Labashane, Warner, Head looks like he's playing the best cricket of his life. So they've got a better batting lineup and they've got a better bowling lineup. We, you know, Anderson and Broad, God love them, got a combined age of 74, and we shouldn't be relying on them to win us test <laughs> matches constantly at this point. But nothing better has come along. Finney, have you ever played in a test series where you're just there, or you know, any sort of match where you're just sat there going, the fact is, team selection, tactics, whatever. They're just a bit better than we are. And I feel like that's what we're watching here. We're watching a better side. Every time, every time he plays Surrey, I should imagine. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, for Middlesex, every time you play anyone. <laughs> well, I don't play for Middlesex anymore. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, uh, I, I, in a test match, well, probably South Africa in 2012, when South Africa became the number one test team in the world. We had the dramas with KP being left out um, for the text scandal thing. Um, and then the South Africa beat us in that series and in the final test match. And that was probably the best cricket team that I've ever played against. Like in turn one to 11, it was just ridiculous. Um, that's probably the only time where I've looked at a lineup and thought, actually, yeah, they're, um, they're, they're a lot, lot better than us. Um, mm. And England were number one, you know what? weren't they? When, when, you, when you were playing in South Africa, hadn't you just become number yeah. one? So, Yeah, England had been number one for 12 months. Yeah, so it only lasted 12 months. But yeah, it was, uh, it, yeah, that, that's probably the only team that I, that I think of. Um, and incidentally, that's the only test series I ever lost in my entire career. Look so, at that. There you go. I can't believe, I don't think you've 
you've dropped that statistic in before. I can't believe you've never mentioned that. Considering how much you talk about your fucking fifty, I thought but, you'd mention well, that. What, 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 what I really love about it, Toby, is that he's pointed out to us in, in the last thirty seconds that not only has he only ever lost one Test series. It was against the best side he's ever come across <laughs> in his life. Convenient. So, that, the, the justification that the professional cricketer can have for their performance is truly magnificent yeah. at all times. Yeah, I take my hat off to you, Finney. Yeah, fair. Well, yeah, you did. You did that very well, Finney. I've got to say, genuinely, if, if, if there are any bats when you bowled at Finney, where you're like, I'm bowling well here, like that's, I'm bowling my best ball there, and a guy's just looked. Vi- you're like, this guy's so comfortable against me. I've just bowled my best ball, and he's just. Played the most perfect textbook forward defensive and middled it. Williamson makes you feel like that because really? you bowl a ball, yeah, you bowl a ball that you think is 90 miles an hour. This is when I bowled 90 miles an hour. You bowl 90 miles an hour, just back of a length, nipping away, and um, and he just plays it with soft hands and it dribbles to gully, and you're just a bit like, that's literally all I've got. So that, that, <laughs> that, is, that that's all I've got, and he's just he's played that so calmly as if it's 63 miles an hour, got on top of the bounce, defended it with soft hands with a full face of the back to gully. Um, and it's just stood there looking at you. You're a bit like, oh, shit. <laughs> I love that. That's fascinating. He does make it look very, very easy. He also like runs the ball down to third man for an intentional single off like top of off stump all the time as well. So, so, so all the, be- the best all the best players that I would do that. It's, it's, it's well, I say all the best, as in very few. Joe Root. That's a classic shot for Joe yeah. Root. Yeah, yeah. But that's one of the reasons, actually, why I thought that Ollie Pope, and I still do believe Ollie Pope will make it, because that is also his go-to release shot, or used to be uh, recently, his go-to release shot has been to thrust forward into the front foot and try and find a gap in the covers. But he used to hold back, and, you know, Williamson does that. Um, Coley, Coley can do that. On, on bouncier pitches as well. It's uh, and, and Barbara Azam does it. It's that ability to play late is fantastic in them, isn't it? Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's the sign of a hell of a player because it means, like you say, it means they're playing the ball later than everybody else. Uh, that does actually tie into then, like, where do England go next? Because you touched on Ollie Pope there. You'd imagine they're going to change around the bowling unit. You'd imagine Mark Wood will come back in. We've now got this weird situation with Chris Wokes, who I thought looked, you know, really unthreatening on the very flat Adelaide wicket. But he's probably been our fourth best batsman behind Root. Well, how do you, how do you, how do you, I mean, Finny, Finny, I want to know your view on this. How do you solve the conundrum of England's bottom four? Because that is essentially what's driving a lot of yeah. selection. That Wokes almost has to play because he has to be at eight. Who else can be eight? Yeah, but I, I think you've got to give the batters responsibility and you just have to say, you're the seven best batters that we've got, that we, we trust you to score the runs. And then you pick your four best bowlers, especially when you're two down in the series. Um, I'm not saying Chris Wokes is in the best bowlers, but if they're thinking of swapping the attack around and playing Mark Wood um, and, and to ask someone to play three back-to-back test matches will be difficult. Um, I do think that they're going to have to look at making a bold decision um, and, and saying, OK, we're going to have to pick our seven best batters and our four best bowlers. And, and that that's what we're going to have to trust um, is the way to try and win this test match. I don't think that you can um, have a fourth bowler as just because they can bat a bit at number eight. Um, and I know that's doing Wokesy a disservice. Like his numbers are ridiculous um, in test match cricket with both bat and ball. But 
I, w- I would say that if going into this next test match, they decide that he's not in their bet, their four bowlers that they think are going to take the wickets on that track, then then it doesn't matter. The batting just really doesn't matter to me. Uh, there's there's a, a huge amount of truth in that, Tobes. Uh, there's a guy called uh, Kartikeya Date, who's a, who's a mathematician professor uh, in, uh, I can't remember where he, where he is, at a university. And he gets very angry when people have a go at batting lineups because the record will tell you that it's bowling lineups that win test matches. And he gave a, a, all of England's Ashes series in the last, the last 10 Ashes tours. People have been having a go at England's batters. They haven't done any better except in 2010-11, really, than how they've done this time. With better, we think, with better batters. So it's, you know, that, that is a really fine margin that batters can bring to your game. Your bowlers are going to win you the matches. And Australia's bowlers have bowled more wicket-taking balls than England's bowlers, who were unthreatening at Adelaide. If you let, us, if you let Australia get away with first innings runs over 400, Vinny will tell you in the 2010-11 series, England won that series with first innings runs. If you don't score those first innings runs, it's because the, the bowlers aren't taking the wickets. Yeah, <laughs> so but the everybody knows that bowlers win your cricket matches. They just don't get any of the plaudits. Batsmen, batsmen get all the glory, but everybody knows that bowlers win you. Especially the longer the game is, the more the bowlers win you the match as well. In a 2020 game, a batsman could go berserk. But in a test match, it's all about these bowlers. I hate to give Finney any credit, but... Um, it's the bowlers that win your test matches. Of course it is. Now, that is the question really is, Finney, not what do you think England will do, but you're, you're Chris Silverwood, you're picking this team for this next test match. What, what would you like to see as an England fan, first and foremost? I like, I like throwing this question at you. And, and that includes, I need to hear if you change the batting lineup as well. Yeah. Yeah, I realise that. When you're picking a cricket team, you need to pick <laughs> one to 11, not just, not just four bowlers. Yeah, I I'd go with the same batting lineup. I think Rory Burns showed enough um, in the second innings. I think he's received a couple of good deliveries in that the one that jumped in the first Test match from Cummins and the away swinger from Stark in the first innings of this Test match. Um, so I think he should stay. It's almost unfair to put someone in without any competitive cricket um, as well. Ollie Pope, I think, is the best young batter in the country, so he deserves a go to keep going. Um, at number six, because I think that also if you're um, if you're two nil down in a series and you know it's going to be difficult and it's never been done where you've come back from two nil down, you you have to give someone who you think is going to play a prominent role in the next series the opportunity to try and get to grips with conditions and work it out if you think he's the best player, which I think he is the best young batter in the country. So um, he stays for me. Josh Butler stays because you're right. Out of the four innings, he's been the, been the best batter in two of them um, that we've had so far. Um, and then the bowlers, I think Mark Wood comes back in because you do need that 90-mile-an-hour bowler. Um, and then the other three, depends how people pull up and what the wicket looks like, to be honest. Um, I think James Anderson plays because he's just a genius. Um, and I, I love Jimmy and, and think that he's still the best bowler that England have. Um, and then it's and then it's about whether you go with Leach and one other, or whether you go Robinson and Broad, um, and use Joe Root as the spinner because I think he actually did did a decent job as well as having David Milan, who, as I know, his leg spins relatively handy as well. Um, so it depends on what the wicket looks like, to be honest. 
Lion, Lion was so key, though, wasn't he? I mean, it, it, if you think oh, yeah. about the composition of that bowling attack that Australia had, and that's what made put England's batters under so much pressure, it was being able to bowl Lion over and over again. I know they had the advantage of batting first, but I, I think England, one of the great tragedies of this first two tests is that they played Leach at Brisbane on a green top. They left him out on a turning surface at Adelaide. And I don't think Australia would have been able to play against him at Adelaide the way they did at Brisbane. So I, I want to get Leach into that side at Melbourne if possible. It's usually quite slow. It's quite low. Um, it's a great place for, for batters to thrive. I'm with Finney on, on keeping Pope. I so want to get Leach back in that side. I'd, I'd like to see Leach back in there as well. I just worry if, you know, if they do hit him out of the attack again early on, then suddenly you are carrying around, if anything, the fast bowlers end up actually bowling more overs because Leach is in the side. So it's a really tricky one, but I guess they've got, they've got to back him. He's the best spinner in the country. He's probably the one that normally offers the most control as well. And you kind of just got to back him and, and hope that he, he's able to hold his own a little bit better. Now, we've been very, very sort of England focused, but I do also want to mention one man who is it's not quite as dramatic, but there's a bit of um, Mitchell Johnson's famous Ashes series about the way that Mitchell starts going about his business in the first two games because he probably came in under fire, hadn't bowled very well in test cricket over the last sort of calendar year. When you saw him at the start of the series, you thought that's one of the bowlers that, you know, we might be able to get some runs off. And he's looked back to his best, actually. I think Mitchell Stark's been absolutely superb. We know his pink ball record is is incredible. Um, but he's just he's just so relentless. I watched him, you know, come back on for the, his last spell today. And the first warm-up ball is about 139Ks. And then the second one's 144Ks. And then it just stays at 144Ks for the for the rest of the spell. Uh, it's, he's relentless, isn't he, Finney? And that left-arm angle, I heard you mention on TMS, poor Ollie Pope's never seen anything like that in his life. He's used to facing... Darren Stevens and Tim Murta most of the time in the in, in the Red Bull game. Well, yeah, I think also that's the um, that, that's one of the toughest things for the English batters is they they'll have never seen bowling like this before. Like Haseeb Hamid has never faced someone bowling ninety miles an hour bouncy things at him before, um, and 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 it makes a big difference. And I think that that's one of the criticisms of county cricket is that you're almost throwing people to the wolves by having 70-mile-an-hour little dobbly seamers being the most threatening bowlers in county cricket. It means that no one, no one, quick bowlers don't get picked. Um, it means that batters never face quick bowlers because they're just protecting their stumps against people who are bowling with the golden snitch the entire time. Um, and I think it's quite unfair to expect batters to go to Australia and, um, and play well against 90-mile-an-hour seamers bowling back of a length and things that bounce way more than you're expecting because they're facing guys who are trying to blow their shin off at 70 mile an hour for, for eight weeks of the year. You know, in the 70s, 80s and 90s, Tuffers and I were talking about this at the lift coming down from a crafty bag on the roof of a new broadcasting house. And we we're pointing out the, bat, the bowlers that English county batters faced as a just the way it was day, week in, week out. When four-day cricket and three-day cricket was being played constantly through the season. They'd have Donald and Pollock and Marshall and Croft and a holding. You know, these are terrifying bowlers coming at you time after time. And similarly, England's bowlers had to get out the likes of, you know, Barry Richards and Gordon Greenwich and Brian Lara for 25 years. That was the lot of the English county player. Now, in the last 
four or five years because of the way the schedules have worked, because of IPL, because of international cricket changing. County cricket, red ball cricket, is not going to attract the very best, the very fastest. Josh Hazelwood, for example, is not going to come and play 14 county games, 14 four-day county <laughs> games, is he? No. He couldn't think of anything fucking worse, I wouldn't have thought. <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. George so, Hazelwood so wants to come and freeze his bollocks off on April the 3rd, playing county cricket, trying to pull up for a second spell. I wouldn't have fucking thought so. It's just a nice Worcestershire versus Gloucestershire in May. Oh, yeah. Oh, that'd be lovely. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought so either. I wouldn't have thought so either. So, so how do you solve this problem? And New Zealand have somehow solved this problem. Because they haven't had loads and loads of people who have expressed pace and, and magnificent class playing against them week in, week out. Or have they a bit by having only, I can't I don't know how many first-class teams they've got, it's six, seven, eight. Uh, and so you've got a more concentrated talent pool, I don't know. Yeah, but they, they play on better wickets in New Zealand. I, I've played domestic cricket in New Zealand, albeit a while ago. And the wickets are flat as fuck, so you have to find a way to survive as a bowler or as a batter in those conditions, you learn how to build massive innings to batter. And as a bowler, you have to find a way to take wickets and survive. Whereas in county cricket, when it's played in April and September, you literally just give it to your bloke who bowls 70 miles an hour and say, lob it up there, the ball's going to do enough. I mean, I know that's probably doing a few like guys a disservice. Um, but, but I do think that it's a massive factor in why England are underprepared when they come to play an Ashes series in Australia. Yeah, and also the way that the calendar is, long gone are the days, you mentioned the 70s and 80s, long gone are the days of getting out to Australia a few weeks in advance and playing some, some warm-up games and getting used to the conditions and facing, you know, sometimes you'd face the bowler that you're going to face in the actual Ashes mm. series in a few weeks' time. There's no room for there's that anymore. There's a bounce, there's well. a bounce on the pitches. You know, yeah. in 86 7, mm. they were facing, you're dead right, Toby, they were facing the likes of Craig Matthews and Bruce Reed in warm-up games mm. playing for their states. Yeah. And that's unimaginable now. Can you imagine? Imagine that. Uh, now, speaking of, uh, well, if we can't convince Josh Hazelwood to come over here and play 14 county games for Worcestershire, which I think is a crying shame if you're listening, Josh. We'd love to have you. Um, I want to read out this text I received. So it came from Dan, and I've been meaning to bring this up for the last couple of weeks. So I was doing my show on Radio X, and I got a message into the show from Dan. And he says, hi, Toby. I'm a big fan of Zero Ducks Given. Uh, there are fans out there, believe it or not. Uh, he says, I don't use Twitter, so I thought I would contact you this way. He said, I've had an idea that the 50-over county cricket game should be turned into an FA Cup-style competition like in football with minor oh, yeah. counties involved. He says, I would love to see Cheshire versus Lancashire in front of 2,000 people at Chester or Oxfordshire versus Surrey in front of 3,000 people in Oxford, Berkshire versus Middlesex, Staffordshire versus Derbyshire, Lincolnshire versus Nottinghamshire, it's, it's easy nowadays to set up makeshift stands at grounds and have TV crews there. If possible, get it all on terrestrial TV and really promote it like the FA Cup is promoted. What do you, Dan and Stephen, think of this? And I, I love this idea, to be honest with you. Um, we talk about how we can save the Red Bull game in this country. I think that's a romantic idea. And then I mentioned this to Finney and Finney said he's been saying this for bloody mm -hmm. ages. But you and Is that right, Finney? You like this idea. You've been thinking about this for a while. Yeah, I like the idea of a knockout 50-over game for, for a number of reasons. Because one, I think 50-over cricket's dying, if we're being quite frank. Um, and I think that its space in the global calendar is going to be squeezed and squeezed. And 
I also think that there there needs to be some way of playing under pressure, I suppose. Um, and I think that playing a 50-over game, a knockout game, um, it has something riding on every game. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big fan of a knockout 50-over tournament that would then potentially free up space in the calendar for other things. Can, can I ask you, Philly? Oh, sorry, go for it, Dan. I was just going to say, it's, it's lovely how all the oldest ideas come back around again, don't they? I mean, I was brought up with the Gillette Cup, which then became the NatWest Trophy. And that's exactly what happened. The minor counties played, and there was a knockout. And you had, there was a wonderful thing, because there were 17 um, counties. And in order to make it work, they had to have 16 ties. So 15 of the major counties would play against minor counties, and then two of the major counties play against each other. So they got the double draw. So you could get Surrey, Middlesex, and then all the others play against minor counties. And Finney talks about this like it's a lovely thing. And he's dead right. It was a lovely thing. But if you talk to the players who played in the games where they got knocked out by Cumberland or Shropshire, <laughs> and they did happen, most years there wasn't an upset. But every two or three years, there'd be one upset. And the absolute shocking heartache of being <laughs> in that side when you were a pro and you were knocked out. And Devon, Devon did it a few times. Um, it was, it was, and it was, you know, it's all like back page headlines as well. And they became massive. And the, the fans of the counties that lost used to give the players terrible, terrible stick in the 70s and 80s. Nothing has changed in that sense. So be careful what you wish for, Finney, or else you might find yourself playing against Berkshire <laughs> and losing <laughs> and the Sussex faithful going after that's you. their own that's their own stupid fucking fault for losing if anything Finney should be looking at this as going this is where I can cash in Finney I mean we we had that bet last season about how many sixes Finney could hit imagine if he teed off against Rutland he's gone absolutely berserk against Rutland this this could be he a chance he tee to... off in the second 11 game he's not going to tee off against Rut- Rutland Actually, Rutland are probably shit, aren't they? Because it's the tiniest <laughs> county in the country. Well, it's a well-chosen tote. But, yeah, you know, they, if, they he, if he comes up against any of, the, any of the big minor counties like Devon, he'd be in serious trouble. Uh, well, and, and on that note, we, uh, we'll say goodbye until next week. By the way, I, I do think England are going to turn around the sashes and win 3-2. I mean, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? We'll win the toss, put on about 500 runs. Uh, Burns is going to come good. Hamid's going to come good. Pope's going to come good. Skit them out. Probably win by like an innings and 70, hey. I reckon. Look, it's been done before. It was done by the Australians, albeit on the back of Bradman getting two double hundreds and 170 odd in 1936. And it was against the quizzling traitor, evil bastard, Gubby Allen, who was England's captain, who was half Australian anyway, so he couldn't be trusted. But it is possible. And um, wouldn't it be a wonderful Christmas miracle? Because that's the one thing we haven't discussed, because we won't be back on now until after Christmas. Of course. It's, It's our Christmas plans. Oh, yes. do, we, do we have Christmas plans? I mean, Finney's got Christmas in the warm climates of Australia, which is sometimes strange. Do you have Christmas plans, Tobe? Uh, yeah, I've got a busy one. See, I've, I've basically, because I've got divorced parents and obviously a missus with her parents, so I've got three Ooh. Christmases. So I get three lots of turkey, three lots of presents. Um, so all I really need to do now is hope that um, my in-laws, that their marriage, which is coming up to 50 years, if that could f- crumble and fall apart at the seams, would be great because then I get the full. <laughs> I get the full four. So you know, if if if, if their if their fifty year marriage yeah. could could be in tatters this time next year, then I'll get the maximum four Christmases. So I'm very much looking forward to it. Finney, you're going to have a boiling hot Christmas, but I guess you're used to this from your England playing days, being abroad in a hot country for Christmas. 
Yeah, I mean, it's strange. It doesn't feel like the build-up to Christmas whatsoever over here. Uh, it's a very different feeling. But yeah, I, I'll try and suss out a turkey dinner somewhere, but I might be struggling. And Norcross, you're just going to sit in your damp flat, yeah. smoke, smoking and drinking and... What have you, if, if, well, your miss, you, I, I assume your missus doesn't listen to the podcast. Can you tell us what you've what you've got? Her probably something yeah, depressing. I could, I could, I can certainly tell you what we've got, got, got planned. We, we had planned a very a modest family Christmas, but unfortunately, one part of that segment has come down with COVID. Um, so, unlike you, I'm trying to avoid getting both Omicron and Delta in, mm. in consecutive days. Okay, uh, because in a world exclusive, I can inform zero ducks listeners that. I shall be spending uh, at least the last four hours of Christmas Day at BT Towers, where I shall be commentating on the Boxing Day Test match, but in English time. So while Finney gets to do it in Boxing Day time, my Christmas Day is going to be wrecked by England losing the toss, Australia batting and making their stately way to 305 for two, while I and Mark Rampakash <laughs> tried to make sense of it. Dan, the studio in Stratford Dan in the Norcos, middle of the night. The face of BT Sport Cricket. No, not face, not face, not face. I don't put the face on. Okay, that's good. They, that's they, they'll, still, they'll still leave that to the attractive boys in the studio. No, yeah. I'm just a disembodied voice with the occasional caption. Speaking of which, doesn't Matt Pryor look exactly like the rest of the big show nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> that's a spitting image. Whenever it cuts to him, I keep thinking they've got the big show on to talk about wicket-keeping technique. Uh, well, I Merry think he Christmas. Stopped, I think he stopped cycling, don't you? Because he used to he used to cycle so much that he was fit as a butcher's dog. And I just have a feeling that he might be uh, in, doing something different now, like breaststroke. <laughs> <laughs> it, be it, was, it was one of the things that came out of sports personality of the year for me. That one of our greatest our greatest Olympians, and I do love this this thought that Britain is brilliant at producing the fastest slow swimmer in the world <laughs> yeah he's got 17 consecutive world records for swimming the slowest stroke and i think that is a testament to this great nation mm. it's a thought that it's going to warm me over christmas and into the new well, year the beauty of the team gb olympic gold medal hall every year is that we're good at about four things we're just really good at them so we just clean up in four events we have been since about 1928 uh, right. Sitting down and swimming slowly. <laughs> and, and making a horse <laughs> dance. And that's about that's about it, basically. <laughs> uh, right, chaps, Merry Christmas. Lovely to see you all. Next time we chat, England will be uh, 2-1 down in the ashes and just about to turn it all Yay. around. So have a lovely Christmas. And uh, Zero Ducks Given listeners, thank you for listening. We will speak to you soon. Cheers, chaps. Ho, ho, ho. Fuck off. Fuck <laughs> off. <laughs> lovely Christmassy message for the listeners. Podcast Network.